You didn't even use any big words. Yeah. Who are you and what have you done with Fitz? <laughs> I thought I used smaller words today. This is the RC Roundtable, a casual discussion about all aspects of flying model airplanes. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to the show. As usual, I'm, I'm Fitz Walker. And joining me is Terry Dunn. Good morning. And Lee Ray. Hello. And today we have a very special guest, the product manager of HobbyCo product development, Mr. Gary Wright. Hello there. Hey, Gary. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Well, we'll jump right in. Uh, uh, we'll actually start with some HobbyCo products. We noticed that uh, you guys have a new Tower Sport coming out. It looks like a real classic design of a low wing. Roughly, uh, it's a spoon span in this thing. 60 inch, pretty good size. Yeah, it's a standard 40 size sport plane. Um, my, my role at Tower, I'm one of many hobby, uh, many product managers. Uh, so I'm, I'm familiar with the Tower Sport, but uh, I haven't actually um, messed with one or flew one. It reminds me of a top flight contender that somebody grabbed by the wingtips and stretched it out a little and then grabbed the spinner in the tail and stretched it out a little that way. It seems to have the same lines, but just you know, pulled out a little in each direction. <laughs> Actually, it's, it, it is a low wing sport plane. That's about the only thing it has in, in common with the contender. The contender was designed by Dave Platt back in the 70s mm -hmm. for top flight. And the Voyager was not designed in the 70s. It was a lot more recent by someone else. Now, this one is made for glow or electric. In your observation of, from what you see there, how is the balance of what people prefer these days? Um, can't speak officially for Hobby Co. in that regard, but from what I see in, at fly-ins and events, uh, electric is the dominant power system now. Okay, interesting. There's still a significant amount of glow interest everywhere, but um, electric is the dominant. Yeah, and that's kind of the same trend that I see at my club. There's still a lot of guys who fly nitro, but uh, maybe five years ago they wouldn't have even been interested in electric, and now they're they're taking kind of a raised eyebrow. Right, right. Well, there used to be the common thought that electrics don't have the same power as nitro. Well, that 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 comparison has sort of been stood on its head. You can make an electric outperform a, a glow-powered um, engine by a great margin. And then there was the common thread that electrics don't fly as long. Well, they can be made to fly just as long if they're propped and set up a, uh, appropriately. Um, so, you know, the, the mix is changing somewhat. Yeah, a lot of people have, have gone over to electric simply because it's such an uh, ease of maintenance and it's just sort of just turn the switch on and go, it's quiet. Exactly. It's convenient and easy and I think we're in a generation of um, people that are instant, of the instant gratification mindset. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah video yeah. game generation. Well, I'd like to say that I think this sport, when I first saw it, reminds me of one of my favorite uh, 40 size sport planes, and that's the Hobby Coast Starfire 40. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a model that I've owned three of, 
unfortunately because the first two uh, didn't quite make it <laughs> but yeah. i st i still have a starfire 40 in my uh, attic and i flew it as recently as last year i don't get it out a lot but when uh when i saw this kit uh, it brought back a lot of fond memories of that kit yeah. and i'm looking forward to uh to buying this because that's a great price at only 99 bucks yeah. for an arf uh it's a it's just a little bit longer as far as the the wingspan that's it I, everything else pretty much matches up to the starfire 40 but i want to i want to fly that as an electric yeah were your starfires kits or arfs lee they were arfs okay interesting and I also you also tricycle gear tricycle gear in fact okay. i i sent you guys a photo but i have a an rc groups uh page on it because i it had been in storage for quite some time and uh you know had some damage to it and i rebuilt it and flew it uh put a different engine on it because the um i think on that one I, i'm not sure i didn't have an os i think i had an mds you know one of those russian engines so it didn't didn't quite fly right um but anyway i put a different engine on it and it flies really well but a great performer, and that's why I've always wanted to keep one in my collection. Now, now the Starfire looks a little more patternish than this plane. It does, but I mean, if I mean, except for maybe the wing, because the wing on the Starfire goes back a little bit. But otherwise, I mean, the specs are very similar. Again, it's, I think it's only what four, or five more inches wingspan. Hmm. Well, still, it looks like it has good momentum. It should be. A really good flyer. It looks like there's classic designs uh, back in the, with the 70s, 80s yeah. for sport planes. And yeah, exactly. And they're available now, so I think we'll be seeing some around before long. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good throw in the, well, I say throw in the car, it's, you still got to remove the wing and stuff, but I mean, I, I've always enjoyed the Starfire. It's really nice, pretty fast, and the video they have, I mean, I was watching it going, man, that's a I gotta get back. I gotta get my Starfire back out because I, I really enjoyed the performance. Right. So, who has the the Tower Sport webpage open right now? I do. <laughs> Look at the recently purchased together list, and what do you see? Okay. And I'm probably we're... building this up too much, but you go to the recently purchased together parts. You've got the OS engine, a speed control, and then what? At first, to me, looked like a roll of toilet paper. I don't see what you're talking about. I'm looking at the the actual page, so I don't see what you're talking Sometimes about. Sometimes they have two different pages, maybe a product page and actual yeah, purchase page. Yeah, I think this is probably the product feature page. <laughs> okay, yeah. what's this but toilet paper roll you're talking about? <laughs> well, it's actually the rubber insert for a starter, but the drawing they have for it, it <laughs> looks like a roll of toilet paper. So I thought it was one of those April Fool's Easter eggs, but it's not. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I mean, if it was a primary accessory, that would say, yeah, that's questionable. <laughs> Hey, Gary, can you run it up to the web and photography department? That uh, <laughs> look at toilet paper. We prefer quilted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. All right. We beat that horse to death. Yes. So uh, last episode, I believe we talked about the tactic watch, and we were divided on it. So you guys should know that I now have one in hand, or should I say on hand? I received it a couple of days ago. I haven't really used it for flying yet, but I went to my daughter's school yesterday to give a talk on multi-rotors, and I brought that along with me because it just happened to already be tuned into the, the frequency of one of my video cameras, and the kids were really impressed with it. They thought it was the coolest thing ever. So take that, Lee. Yeah, and also the big Christmas gift this year is some kind of 
bird that picks its way out of a doll that people are fighting, you know, 500 bucks for. So, yeah. Are, are you marginalizing our children? Yeah, I am. <laughs> what do they know? They're just kids. <laughs> well, from just using it in the shop to see how it works, it's a surprisingly sharp picture. It's not big, um, but it's surprisingly sharp, and I can see where it's useful somehow. I haven't figured it out yet. And oh, it's bling. <laughs> maybe, but that doesn't mean it isn't useful. <laughs> Geek bling. Now, you guys saw the email that we received from Philip Hinkle, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he had yes. a good suggestion. We, right. We met Philip at eFest a couple of years ago, and he's the, one of the reps for ProAdrenaline Software. But he said he's got um, a very similar monitor to this that originally came with a wristband, but he has a, a tiny whoop set up which is you know, those micro indoor racing quads. And he's got a little travel case that he carries around. And he said the tiny <laughs> monitor is perfect for that because it's so easy to transport. And I don't think we had ever considered that. Yeah, it's actually a pretty clever idea. It's just, since it's so small, you can put some Velcro on the back of it or something and just kind of stick it on things. Yeah, he had it rigged to his transmitter and uh, yeah. looked pretty convenient. And that's fine, but it defeats the purpose of what they're trying to sell it for, which is to put it on your wrist. So I'm okay with this guy saying, well, I have a better idea for it. I just don't think the idea of putting it on your wrist is the good idea. Well, well, guys, if I might interject here. Please. please. Um, I, I know about that product, but I haven't actually um, tried one myself. It's It's not within the area that I work at at HobbyCo. It's another area. Um, however, uh, when I first saw it and I saw the concept, I thought this will be great if it's priced accordingly so that someone could buy this and if they go to an FPV race, um, they can have that on their wrist and they can watch different racers. I, I don't know if the intent was actually to fly with it to begin with. Yeah, I'm not sure how you could do that, at least on your wrist. Yeah. Yeah, that's something we, we also discussed last time, too. We thought, well, maybe if you go to a racing event, you can just like you said, like coming to a NASCAR and taking a radio with you, you can tap into different people and exactly. see what they're doing. And I think there's certainly a market for it in that aspect. I still think it's just too small. I mean, Terry, do you, can you imagine sitting down and watching a whole bunch of different you know, FPV devices and, and enjoying the show that way? Well, that's because you're half blind. <laughs> I'm handy capable. <laughs> right, so repeat your question. I'm not sure I understood. Well, the idea was that you could flip channels and see different you know, views from other racers, you know, if right. you're doing an event. All right. Can you imagine sitting there and just sitting there flipping the channel and, you know, watching others and, and saying that's entertaining? Um, I think if you went and that was your only source of intended entertainment, yeah, you'd walk away disappointed, but... Why would you go to a race just to watch it on a screen? That would just be one aspect of why you're there. So, and I would think it probably beats uh, hauling around a larger monitor. But I don't know. I've never been to one, a racing event like that. So I'm not ready to knock it yet. Miss Debbie Downer. <laughs> yeah, really. I'll, I'll knock it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you will. Well, ultimately, we'll let the market decide. It's not on my Christmas list. But we know. We know. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Anti-Multi-Rotor. Uh, well, the good news is that. They, hate, 
they hate him as much as <laughs> yeah yeah apparently so oh man <laughs> they commit suicide when they, they can man. smell his fear well you know what speaking of multi-rotor gary do you fly multi-rotors uh yes i do i don't compete racing and i don't practice fpv enough to to not embarrass myself if i went to a race <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but mean? but i do fly multi-rotors quite a lot actually <laughs> it's, do you, it's more do you, in the testing and evaluation and tuning aspect though <laughs> fpv or strictly you know piloting uh both but line of sight primarily because when you're testing and and you're tuning and you're tweaking um it's generally line of sight that's very very quick um and then once you get an acceptable line of sight, FPV is the next level. And then that tells you what you screwed up in the tuning line of sight. <laughs> doesn't work for FPV. <laughs> and for those who don't know, Gary is a world-class RC helicopter pilot, in addition to being a good airplane pilot. Uh, I don't know about that, but if you say well, so. <laughs> don't be humble. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was impressed when I saw you fly. Okay, so I have a uh, new plane on my bench, a... Uh, Hacker model vector. This is a roughly 30-inch wingspan, 3D foamy, EPP foam. This thing uh, I just got in will be a future review, and I just finished it last night, as a matter of fact. It was actually kind of fun putting together. Uh, some things are a little different than some of the other planes I put together, but it went together pretty easily. I have to say, the thing looks indestructible. I, I think uh, other than maybe one or two things, I uh, probably have a hard time breaking it and uh, it seems pretty light for being epp foam oh give plane. give me it to me for a little bit i'll break it for yeah. you <laughs> you got that special ability yeah i've had foamy flats and flat foamies whatever you want to call them yeah that's yeah, a profile it's all <laughs> they don't like me very much <laughs> is it a plank airfoil or does it have some curvature to it it's plank yeah okay everything's flat the box was about you know three quarters of an inch thick when i got it now, I recently got a Hacker Model 2. I got the um, Funmaster, and it's also an EPP thing. Mine does have an airfoil, but what I thought was interesting is that some of the parts appear to be 3D printed. I didn't know if yours had any of that. No, I did not notice any of that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah anyway, I thought mine was very well engineered. And uh, Did you notice? I don't know if yours is the same, but mine was made in Europe, not in China. No, I don't know. I didn't really look. Okay. Well, okay sorry. If you're familiar with Hacker Models as opposed to Hacker Motors, which is a different organization, Hacker Models are produced in the Czech Republic, not in China. Uh, okay, so all of them are. Yeah. Okay, good. That explains instructions because there was uh, Czech writing and a lot of good part. Of yeah, just it, if you look up Hacker Model, um, Hacker Model is in the Czech Republic. I thought they were German. No, ha that's Hacker Brushless Motors. Uh. So is Hacker Models a totally different company? A uh, different company, yeah. That's oh, what he just said, Fitz. I'm slow. I'm So they're different companies? No, oh, just kidding. <laughs> I did not oh. did not know there was two hackers. That had, that's fascinating. Learned something new today. Yeah, they've both been around for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I just thought the Hacker Planes were an offshoot of the Hacker Motor Company out of Germany. No, no they're no. still fighting in court <laughs> over naming rights. This, you know, one kit is a small sample for me, but the the engineering and the, the build quality online is definitely a few notches above the normal Chinese stuff. 
they're they're actually very impressive there there's another one that um i see on the tower site it's due to arrive uh sometime in mid-january it's called the cool master um i don't know where they come up with those names <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a model that tower imports it's not something that was developed in asa abico <laughs> um the um cool master is epp foam with some plywood crutch inside it um it's got a novel way of of mounting the wing to the fuselage the panels plug in it, it's a pretty large airplane uh, i actually put a sample together and tested it and had an absolute blast <laughs> it, it's a great flying airplane uh, not even for a foamy it's just a great flying airplane period and strangely enough looks like a high wing trainer but i could get knife edge loops out of it um it was powered extremely well uh, and it also comes with a glider toe release which i didn't get to check out yet oh neat now the picture i'm looking at gary has it on floats does your is it is float standard or is that optional floats are optional standard it comes with some really 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 big wheels um sort of like a bush plane the, the wheels have to be five or six inches in diameter. <laughs> oh, wow. So, Terry, I, I, I've got our next project. Put, <laughs> put this cool master on floats and arrow tow a glider off the water. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we just put lights on it and do it at night, too? I'll, okay, let's well, really get this going. And while some blind, smoke. While blindfolded. Right. <laughs> oh, no FPV on a tactic watch. <laughs> Uh, you had to get that little jab in there, didn't you? <laughs> you just had to go there, didn't you? Now, I, could, I could help you out with the cor with correctly assembling the power system for it also. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'd appreciate that. What I put in there, it's not very heavy. It's a 4S4000 setup with a Rimfire 32 and um, just propped appropriately. Uh, it would hover and pull out a hover and do everything. Wow, that's probably a five or 600-watt setup, right? Um, well, depending on how you prop it, it can be from a three or 400 watt setup to the way I run them close to a thousand. Ah, that's what we need. A thousand, thousand watt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> 220, 221, whatever it takes. Yeah. I actually only have a, had a 13.8 on that one, which was more than ample power. It was way overpowered. And I think that's around an 800, 850 watt setup. So I don't see the wingspan listed on this uh, preview site. Do you happen to remember what it is? Um, I don't remember offhand, but it's a lot larger than you would think. It, it's around, uh, I want to say, 63 inches. Okay. That's uh, a pretty good size plane. Right, right. It, it's about the same size, maybe a couple inches larger than the Tower Sport you were discussing earlier. Okay. It, it's a pretty big airplane, yeah. Now, a neat thing about all of these hackers is that they have printing right on the foam, and it seems to be pretty durable. Mm -hmm. so I guess that's uh, something they do at the factory. Yeah, it comes from the factory printed on the EPP. Okay. So, yeah, it's not a vinyl that would peel off or anything like that. It, I've uh, used tape and things like that on mine, and it, it doesn't peel off. It's right. It seems to be pretty uh, stout. All right, well, I'll keep an eye out for this uh, Coolmaster. Yeah.
So, Lee, you want to give us an update on John Taylor's adventures? I can. The uh, forums and Facebook threads have been quite silent on the status of John's uh, lawsuit with the FAA, and his letter explains it pretty well. So I emailed him a private message and chatted with him, and he sent me back this response and gave me permission to read it to the listeners. And it's it's a little long, but I'd like to read the whole thing because it's very well written. And I, to me, it's kind of like that uh, motivational speech we all need to remember what's going on. So here's his letter. It says, briefing in the case concluded in August. The next thing is for the court to schedule it for an oral argument. A decision typically comes down two to four months after that. However, there is no deadline. Based on the scheduling of other cases, I would estimate the court in January will schedule the case for an oral argument in March. So that's quite a ways off. I remember, excuse me, I remain very confident in the merits of the case, though I realize public attention has died down. My primary concern would be congressional intervention prior to a decision. My original strategy was based on the hope of an immediate injunction prior to Christmas of last year, but that was not successful. I hadn't planned it this way, but I'm in it for the long haul. I do regret that any successful result will come after responsible parties in government are long gone and won't have to answer to the press or others for their actions. Though my case is no longer the subject of much discussion, nothing has really changed from a legal standpoint. If anything, the court is forced to realize that the case hasn't simply faded away with time. I haven't had much to say on the forum simply because there hasn't been anything meaningful to report. Thanks again. And he's right. Uh, uh, sometimes lawyers or other parties get their way because they push things off for so long. It just dies down in the press. And obviously when it first happened, it was a huge uproar. I mean, the AMA was involved, but, uh, you know, the FAA has gotten their way. So, uh, I mean, I could see it both ways. You could say, you know, they did this intentionally and you could use that on your side of the case to say it's, it wasn't mandatory. There haven't been any incidents, incidences, um, you know, People have still been flying safely. It wasn't as crazy as the FAA said it was, but the FAA is going to return and say, well, you know what? It's working. We've got all these people registered. Why stop using it? And I, I mean, I'm sure that's one of the tactics lawyers use is to just keep drawing it out until it's not heard from anymore. But I hope listeners who heard that, you can hear that John Taylor is very passionate about it. I am. Uh, I, I like talking with him. I, I still chat with other people on the forums about it. And I still think it's wrong, even though it's just... As they say, it's water under the bridge. I, I think some people who are firm believers in it should still hold on to that hope that the uh, a judge will uh, hear the logic about it and say, yeah, there's no reason why we should have had it in the first place. So to be clear, John Taylor is the guy who on his own is suing or challenging the FAA over their registration policy. Yes. Okay. And as far as I know, I think it's the only one that's still in trial. I think the AMA had something, but honestly, if they did, there's they're not talking at all about it. I think, and I hate to say this, but I think they've given in. So, um, you know, because it's, I guess it's good for them to get more members. But uh, John is the only one that I know of. I know, you know, we there was one other uh, company, God, I used to follow them, but they gave up. So we'll see. But so, I really appreciate John Taylor responding and giving me this information, and I, I I do appreciate his efforts. If if they do, you know, 
come out, if the case doesn't come out as we hope, um, kudos to him for, for pushing, I mean, on his own dollar. I mean, I, I, I helped fund him, but this guy did it all on his own and it should have been backed immensely by other clubs and organizations to begin with. So for somebody who wants to give him a show of support, where should they go to, to pat him on the back? Well, he, I mean, he is the one who posted an article on the uh, on Facebook. There is a uh, it's called UAV Legal News and Discussion. Um, it he ha as he said he hasn't been quite active, but I would go on that forum and uh, you'll find a thread or excuse me a post that concerned his lawsuit and uh, look for him on there. You can do a search within the group. Okay. Larry, uh, I mean, Gary, do you have any take on this? Any comment? Well. I I have a lot of opinions. Um, I don't care to share a lot of them <laughs> in a public forum. Um, I, I have a private pilot's license, so I know it from the other side also. I know how the FAA operates. And um, although I don't currently fly, I'm not, I'm not current using my full-scale license. Um, I abide by the letter of the current laws and registered. <laughs> um, just to protect myself. <laughs> sure, they could use that as leverage against you. Your first bill license, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, the FAA can't make laws. They make regulations to regulate how the national airspace system is used. And so their, their primary method of enforcement would be suspension um, or revocation of pilot certificates. <laughs> Right. I, I call it intimidation. <laughs> mm, that could be another term for it. <laughs> yeah. And although they're not authorized to make laws, um, Congress or anyone else doesn't seem to be challenging their attempt to do so, which mm -hmm. is a shame. Yeah. Well, they, they haven't made any laws. Congress makes laws. They make yeah. regulations to regulate the national airspace system. That's what they do. Yes, that's absolutely correct, and I think it's a, a lot of the debate is whether they have the authority for this particular type of regulation or not, and that's I think. Um, yeah, and and although my opinions would probably be exactly identical to your opinions, um, I shouldn't um, really comment much on that. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Fair enough. Yeah. We'll we'll end it with a wink and a nod. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of ending, uh, I think we'll on that note we'll take a break and be right back. What if I go stronger? What if I get higher? What if I start doing things I know I will regret? I will make my own way. I will not surrender. I will do my best. So, as I mentioned, we have a very special guest this time. We have uh, Gary Wright. Now, Gary Wright is a product manager for HobbyGo product development, and under the umbrella of, uh, umbrella of HobbyGo, we have, uh, of course, Great Plains and Tower Hobbies. And uh, just a little personal background, uh, I've crossed paths with Gary for quite a few years, I mean, going back probably a good 10 years or more. Uh, I think we uh, crossed paths at Seth some years ago, and uh, also uh, Gary is a... Uh, designer of aircraft i actually have one of your e3ds we actually had uh yeah. if you remember that this was one of the early 
Uh, it was a kit, balsa kit, designed for electric only. And this thing was designed from the ground up to be highly aerobatic, 3D-capable plane on, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, it was NICADs and brushed motor on a gearbox? Uh, that is correct. It was an old RC car motor, uh, Kyosho Endoplasma, that was uh, 20 or 25 bucks back when all brushless motors were 10 times that. Yeah. And 10 NICADs. This this was uh, I had to say it was a fantastic plane. I built it over a Christmas vacation once, and I think we had some email or IM uh, conversations about it when I first got it. And <laughs> funny story, when I put it together, I, I, it was white and transparent red, and I thought it looked still a little plain for my legs. I thought, well, let me go to the hobby store and see if I can find some stickers or decals, and I ended up in the RC car section, and there it was. It was a decal set. For the Viagra NASCAR racing, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it was number six. I don't know who drove it, but I thought that's perfect. And so I put these Viagra stickers all over the thing, and I always got flack for it at the field. But I said, "Hey, it gets up in a hurry." So I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys suck. That's really bad. <laughs> um, but I have to say, I had that plane for a very long time. Uh, mm. It's. Uh, it actually eventually met its demise, I think, last year, uh, unfortunately. But I always brought it out for fun flies. Our club would have a little fun fly where we'd have to drop a bomb and do some maneuvers or whatever. And I, I always play second, first or second with the thing because uh, it's such a great flying plane, easy to fly, flew really slow. I eventually upgraded it to, of course, lithiums and uh, Outrunner brushless motor. Uh, for such a big plane, it flew great on just a simple 3-cell, three 3,000 milliamp battery pack. And uh, I had a lot of fun with it. I I dumb-thumbed it into the pilot station on a, a really bad crosswind day, and it kind of tore itself apart. And, uh, I said, well, I've had my fun with it. The, the only thing is, that was your version 1, I think, so it had one-piece wing that was not removable. Right. And it, for the longest time, I had sort of a sports car, and it, it was... It was really right. <laughs> <laughs> chewing it into my car was not fun. Yeah, uh, cumbersome was the correct word. Yeah, yeah. A little, a little background on the E3D, if I can digress. Oh, go um, ahead. I, I've been in the hobby since I was 12 years old, since 79. And around 2000, I got a Zaggy, and I thought, just to play. Wait, this. wait, wait, wait. Say yeah. that again. Around 2000, around the year 2000, I got a Zaggy to play uh, with. Okay, hold on. Did you hear that? Terry yeah. Lee? Yeah, he said it correctly. Zaggy? Yeah. Yeah, Zaggy. You it's said Zaggy. You said you Zaggy. Fitz. You don't yeah. say Zaggy, do you? Uh, Fitz does. Don't, As don't you were saying. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I was a little bit burnt out with helicopters. I just competed in something the previous year that um, took a lot of preparation over a year. And I, I was a little burnt out, and I got the Zaggy to just play with a little bit and I got sort of interested in electrics. The the Zaggy is what did it for me to get to go all electric, which I did within the next year or so. Um anyway, um I liked 3D airplanes and I started learning about electric power systems and wanted to design a 3D airplane that would fly well on electric, but I didn't want to spend the money on brushless motors. Uh, they were very expensive at the time. Um, so I started playing around with these car motors, the brushed motors, and I learned the, the magic of gearing and using big props. 
And so I designed the E3D around that car motor, around that power system. And when I did that, weight, every gram was critical. And gluing the wing in, I'm getting back to my point now, <laughs> when you said it was a one-piece airplane with the wing glued in, gluing the wing in was the lightest way to attach the wing to the airplane. And the only negative is transportation, as you saw. So that's why the wing was glued in. Um, it, it did away with any kind of wing attachment arrangement that, that cost any grams in weight. Yeah, that makes sense. And like I said, we were talking brushed motors and NICAD. So uh, it, it was definitely obvious that you had spent a considerable amount of time trying to make the thing as light as possible and still hold itself together. Right. And uh, it, it performed very well on, on that setup. And when you went to brushless and lipo, it was just made out of helium. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, uh, you eventually came up with an R version, didn't you, I think? Yeah, we uh, we produced kits. Um, we started a business, a side business out of my home in Florida. Um, I had someone laser cutting parts that was contracted out. And then we assembled kits um, at the house. And we sold a couple thousand, actually a little more than 2,000 kits. Wow. Which knowing what I do now for a garage operation, which that literally was a legal garage operation, but still a garage operation. <laughs> those are fantastic numbers. <laughs> I was just going to say, you did all that in your garage. That's uh, yeah. absolutely and awesome. I didn't want to spend the money on landing gear. The, the pre-bent landing gear um, didn't go into the kits until after the first 500 kits were done. I was buying 532nd music wire and I had a bunch of jigs set up and I was hand bending landing gear for them. Um, <laughs> and the, the landing gear originally came off of a um, uh, Tower Hobbies Uproar. Uh, it was that, that style of landing gear. Oh, yeah. It just used straps on the very bottom. Um, so I eventually started buying the Uproar landing gear, which cost a little more to put in the kits, but I was tired of hand-bending landing gear. <laughs> I imagine I got old really quick. Got old really quick. Well, uh, through a partnership with Aero Model, we arfed it. I think that was 2003 or four, sometime like that. And um, we sold a couple rounds of arfs. And the arfs were modified. Uh, of course, brushless motors were affordable then and uh, by that time. And so a few ounces, a few grams of weight were almost irrelevant. Um, so the wing was removable on the arms. Now, was the Freedom 3D a variant that you were part of, or was it even related? I was not part of that, although every single dimension, including the airfoil, was identical to the E3D. The only difference was the rounded turtle deck and canopy. So that was an unauthorized knockoff. That's the most polite way of putting it. Hmm, that's a shame. Yeah. Um, now the the Surmark Banshee E3D uh, that had a lot of the same numbers, but the rounded turtle deck and canopy and nice, pretty looking wingtips that was authorized. I actually contributed on that, but um, 
the Banshee looked a lot better than my E3D and it knife edged a little better, but it didn't do anything else as well. But, but, but their plans are discontinued now. So I feel okay <laughs> talking about them. <laughs> the, um, the Banshee was a very good airplane and it was authorized. Uh, but in order to make it look good, it didn't fly as well in a lot of things. Have you come up with any other designs uh, since then, other than your most recent one, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second? Um, oh, yeah. If, if you look in my blog, you actually have to look in the comments on the blog on RC Groups. You'll see half a dozen of them. Um, the latest one is a super lightweight, uh, large airplane flying on the same little tower motor that the Crazy Wing flies on. Um, so it's sort of going back to the roots of the E3D, super lightweight, super low wing lining. Uh, but I, I built, let's see, I average about six or eight different designs each year. Um, just, I like to design and build. And that's not my role at Hobby Coast, so you don't see all those airplanes. Um, it, they're just things that I design and build because I want to design them and build them for myself. Um, they happened to like the crazy wing and thought that it was marketable, so now it's available through Tower. Yeah, I've, I've done a recent review on that, and uh, I had a lot of fun flying it, and I had several club members instantly taking a liking to it. Uh, but, but speaking on that aspect, can you give us a little insight on what it takes to design and develop and bring to market a, a model airplane? Um, I, I can from a personal standpoint, which is the same as uh, like any of the larger organizations that market aircraft. Um, the product development process is always the same. Uh, you start with a, an, an idea, you develop a prototype. Uh, maybe multiple prototypes to refine the design. Um, and then you um, create a marketing plan, you go into production and produce them. Well, there are a few added aspects when you're in a larger organization. You have to, you, you really need to prove the viability of the design first. So you have to do market research. Um, when you're a garage operation, as I was, uh, with Gary Wright model products, I could produce a model and make a dozen of them. It wasn't to be hugely profitable, although it was nice if it made a little money, which it did. Uh, but the, the main intent was I could distribute something, uh, have a design out there that I created. So it's, it's a self-satisfaction thing with a little bit of financial reward involved. Uh, Basically, the GWMP products paid for me going to events and marketing the products. Uh, it's not like you can't get rich on models doing the marketing. When you're in a larger organization, you have to think of much, much, much higher volumes. So things that are viable for uh, a small operation, a home operation, are not viable viable for a larger organization. Yeah, I think that's what the economists call economies of scale. Thanks. Well, economies of scale, yeah, uh, distribution, uh, the marketing power of a larger organization. Marketing is really key. So you were talking about uh, with the tactic watch, sometimes you don't know what's a good idea or a bad one until you get it out there. Do you have any examples of something that you thought was really going to soar and just kind of flopped or the opposite, something you weren't so sure about and really mm -hmm. took off? Back in my GWMP days, 
um, with my own business. <laughs> um, I had a couple EDFs, small EDFs that I produced very inexpensively, and I thought, and, and now I left flying them. I still got a couple kits downstairs, um, just sentimental value. I thought those were going to soar, and they sold okay for a very short period, and then just dropped like a rock. Uh, no, no sales. Um, and then there are things like, well, the the crazy wing. <laughs> um, now that you bring it up, I that's something that I built. Like everything else, I design and build for myself. I wanted a, an inexpensive, very quick to build flying wing. Because I like weird, bizarre things, and a flying wing is kind of the edge of just starting into the weird, bizarre things. Not a normal airplane. Um, I built the crazy wing, and then there was interest in producing it, and basically, it's going very well. They can't produce them fast enough. <laughs> so that was a surprise in the other end. Okay. Yeah, the um, the E three Ds were a surprise in the on the positive, um, on the positive side of the scale. When I did the E three D, I thought if I sell a couple hundred of these over a couple of years, it'll be great. It was a couple thousand, so it was a factor of ten. Did so, you design it with the intent of selling it? Um, the original one I designed just for me to have fun. It's what I wanted, and then there was interest in it, so I redesigned it. The original was actually a slightly different size. Um, and um, a different gearbox going on the motor and the gearbox was expensive and I said, well, if a lot of people want this, I need to make it production and to make it production, I really need to go to an affordable gearbox rather than spending, what was it, 60 or 80 bucks on an MEC Monster Box. Right. So I went to the GD 600 from Great Plains, which was, I think it's around 13 or $15. And it wouldn't allow me to spend as, spin as big a prop because it didn't have the high gear ratio. So that meant the plane had to get a little bit smaller. <laughs> okay. So there was a lot of thought that went into that. And that's how it arrived at 48 inches. Um, cause the original I hand built was 63 inches on the same uh, power system. And Weren't there eventually several in the series, a Mini and a XL? Oh, yeah. The 48-inch was the original, and then I did the Mini, which was 38 inches, specifically for the Hacker A2020XL, because it was a very popular motor. It ran on the most popular size batteries out there, 3S2100s, and um, it was very successful. Um, and then I wanted a big one. Uh, so I made uh, an 88 and a 90 inch. Um, I screwed up on the wing on one. They were supposed to both be 90. <laughs> in, I, I had several revisions of drawings, and I happened to print out the wrong one when I was at Kinko's. <laughs> um, so there was one 88 and one that was 90. I was going down the road to produce those kits, and... When I got to the point of um, starting to write the instructions, I did all the math, and the kit was going to cost uh, upwards of four hundred bucks to produce, which means it would have had to market for five or six hundred. And I just dropped it then. I said that's not going to work. <laughs> so you never saw the ninety-inch kit. 
And then my last one I did was a 63 inch version. And each version that I did had small changes aerodynamically. Um, when you're, when you're developing something like that and you prototype it, you decide there are changes that need to be made after you test it. That, that's an iterative process that can go on from now doomsday. And at some point you just have to decide this is good enough and you kit it. And then you come out with the version two later after you've flown it a long time and decide, well, it really does need this and this and this tweak. Um, so nothing is ever perfect. It can never be perfect. There's always room for improvement and you, you can't really release a perfect product. You have to decide at some point, you know, I've made well, with the E3D, I had six different samples or six different prototypes. The last three of them, the only change was the height of the stab to try to get it to knife edge straight. And you have to decide at some point, I'm, I'm um, getting very, very picky here. I need to release this product so that I can make the revenue to generate, to develop the next version. <laughs> and anyway, I've... I've spent too much of your time talking about that. <laughs> no, it's it's interesting because that takes a lot of uh, fortitude and determination to do that. Because uh, at right. one point I had this thought of producing my own line of kits or at least one kit, and I went through the process of drawing it up, having it laser cut, and building a prototype. And it didn't fly like I wanted it to fly, and I realized this is going to take a lot more effort than I had initially expected to get this right. thing anywhere near production and I dropped a project and saw something shiny else that I could look at. Yeah, so it's not, it's not something to sneer at. I mean, that's a pretty, like you laid out, it's a pretty involved process and takes a lot of time mm -hmm. and effort. It's a very involved process. And like I mentioned, this, the, the last three uh, prototypes of the original E3D kit, um, the, the sole difference in those three samples, which were built over a week and a half period, by the way, oh, wow. from laser cutting to test flying, I built three prototypes in a week and a half. Wow. Test flew. The, the sole difference was the stab location. I was changing it in three sixteenths of an inch increments up and down on the fuselage. <laughs> so three then, separate airplanes to test that? Yeah, exactly. Wow. Which... I, I, I realized how stupid I was then. I should have made an adjustable stab now so I could have changed it in one day. <laughs> um, but you live and learn. Sure. Um, and, and then after flying the models for so long and learning that we could move the CGs back further than I was originally flying them at, which was already pretty far back, um, that changed where the stab location needed to be. <laughs> um, so I, I realized you can never actually have that perfect it's only it's only optimal for one cg <laughs> yeah and that's a challenge that i find whenever i review airplanes and i talk about the flight performance mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to get across that what i'm experiencing may be completely different from what somebody else with the same airplane will see because of all those variables exactly exactly so it's hard to quantify that yeah yeah now getting back to the crazy wing Yep. You picked a motor for that, and right. in a previous conversation, you were telling me about all the different applications you've used for that one specific motor. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. Um, well, just a little about that motor first. It, it's it's an Electrofly motor. 
Um, the number is actually TOWG2000. Um, that's a Tower Hobbies part number. It comes in the foamy warb Warbirds from Tower, the P-51, the Corsair, and the Hellcat. It's actually also in the Select Scale Zero and in the Millennium Master. Uh, it's used on a lot of airplanes with different props on three cells. Uh, I bought a Hellcat because I wanted one of the Warbirds, and the Hellcat, I, I was told um, that's the one to get versus the Corsair and the Mustang. Although now I realize they fly about equal. <laughs> anyway, I, I bought the Hellcat to go in, up in the mass warbird launches that they do at all the electric fly-ins these days. You need a foamy warbird that flies off a three-cell pack. And so that fit the bill and it was inexpensive. Well, the motor ran so good, I started playing around with it and going to different props. Um, you can get more increased performance out of an electric just by changing the prop and playing with props than you can any other um, change or test. So I started playing with props and I realized, hey, this motor is really good. And then um, a friend of mine was at a fly-in. He works at, at Hobbyco also. We were at a fly-in up in Minnesota and I flew at the Mass Warbird launch and I started playing with props and he said, that thing really goes. And um, he said, why don't we take the landing gear off and see if it really goes? I said, well, first I'd like to fly it on four cells. So we changed the speed control and we put four cells in it and it really worked well. And the watt meter said, um, told me that for that size motor, there's no way it should survive, but it did. So then we changed props and we got it faster. And then he said, let's take the landing gear off and hand launch it. That'll make it even faster. Well, we had taken a foamy that flies about 50 miles an hour and got it up about 85. <laughs> and when he pulled the landing gear off and hand launched it on four cells with the fastest prop, it went like a bat out of hell until it blew the tail off the airplane. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I thought, well, um, there goes a foamy, but that motor is really interesting. So I started designing a lot of airplanes around it. Uh, most electric motors, you can... You can be pretty safe if you go by the rule of thumb of I want to put three watt, I want to prop it for three watts per pound continuous. That's safe, or three watts per ounce, or per ground. That's pretty safe. And I go a little further since I, I think I know how to use throttle appropriately. I prop them for about five watts per ground, knowing that they're going to average two or three watts per ground in the air with the occasional five watt burst. Well, I'm amazed that you get down to the gram. Oh, yeah. It's a 71-gram motor, so it should be okay if you prop it for 210 watts continuous. Okay. Or if you prop it for about 350 and use throttle so that you average about 180 to 200. It should be okay. Um, What I found playing with this motor, I decided, well, it, it seems to survive it like six watts per gram continuous so i started playing with it some more and i figured it's a 20 dollar motor i don't mind if i burn one up <laughs> it's back in the mentality of the old brushed car motor days you know i want to find the limits and um so we started propping it up and adding sales and um i i think it's such an amazing motor because i can prop it at seven or eight grams per or seven or eight watts per gram 
and it survives. <laughs> Can you quantify what it is that makes this one so durable? I, I do not know, but I, I've, I've got one that was rewound to a lower KV to swing a bigger prop, and I've got one rewound to a higher KV, and you can't push them as hard. Of course, they're different props for different, different combinations of speed and thrust. That's why you change props. But you, you can't push them anywhere near as hard as this stock 1000 kV Tower Warbird motor, as I call it, or the TOWG 2000. Um, I, I don't know what it is that, that kind of works in it, but the size wire for the number of turns and the amount of copper fill, they just, they hit everything right, probably by accident, but everything is right in it. Um, it's a 71 gram motor, so two and a half ounces. So you'd figure two, 300 watts. Um, one of my latest models, the Slow Ride, it's a really, really big model, uh, but it's uh, two and three quarter pounds flying. I fly it on that motor and peak on a hot battery, it's almost 600 watts. Um, <laughs> That's a lot of power for that little motor. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Now, now my average is around 150 to 200 watts during flight on there because the throttle is used so much. Um, but that's with a 13.4 carbon prop. Uh, I, I couldn't run a 13.4 regular electric prop like an APC or a Zor. Um, it was too much current. But when I got the thin carbon multi-rotor prop, um, it got it down to where it will tolerate it. It may not be happy about it, but it tolerates it. <laughs> um, and it pulls this 63-inch airplane around just fine. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum is the crazy wing, an 8-inch or an 8.8 prop. Well, I run an 8.10 now. <laughs> so it's just it's the same motor from a 63-inch really slow aerobat to a 36-inch really fast flying wing. <laughs> And the only thing is you change the prop because it changes the proportion of first gear and fifth gear that you have, as I like to call it. <laughs> I, I didn't even know you could buy an 810 prop. Yeah, it's an APC sport prop. It's not an electric prop. Right. And it doesn't stall at launch? Oh, yeah, it's a little stalled at launch. So normally with the crazy wing, you can just drop it and it'll fly. So you have to actually pitch it just a little bit. <laughs> okay. And then it goes and it will torque and y'all left quite a bit more with that prop, maybe 20 degrees or so on launch, but it, it's nothing, it's nothing major. It's nothing that really takes you by surprise. It just yaws a little bit more on launch. It just goes to show how adaptable some of this stuff is. Oh, exactly. Exactly. That goes from, that takes the same motor, the same battery, the same speed control, from a setup that's got over a hundred mile an hour pitch speed and about 45 ounces of thrust up to something that's got, what was it? 64 ounces of thrust and about a 40 mile an hour pitch speed. Right. That's all a trade-off. It's all a trade-off just with different props. Right. Um, I, I heard you mention before, I don't know if it was before you started recording here, uh, watts per pound on something. And the general rule of thumb is always, well, there are general rules of thumb on watts per pound to get certain levels of performance. 
I don't actually subscribe to that. It it does work. All right, it is. Uh, it does apply to things, the watts per pound rule of thumb. However, if you think a little outside the box and you go to some bizarre sized props, you can get dramatic performance increases at lower wattage levels per pound. Um, generally for a 3D or a sport airplane, if I can, I really want a prop that's 20 to 25% of the wingspan. That's <laughs> my rule of thumb. Now, the E3DXL was a 90-inch wing, and it spun a 24-inch prop. <laughs> Do you find you have to make the landing gear extremely long for that? Oh, yeah, you have to make the landing gear long. Um, if, um, if we had gearboxes available like we did a decade and a half ago, uh, we could dramatically increase the performance of what we fly now. But everyone is of this mindset that gearboxes take too much power, they're too inefficient, when that's really not the case. The big prop, the, the whole point of this, these statements is the big prop is more important than anything else. <laughs> yeah, bigger props are more efficient. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what you gain in the big prop vastly outweighs whatever you lose on the gearbox. <laughs> yeah, another thing, too, that I always contended is that uh, yeah. with, with a gearbox, you can run an in-runner motor, and typically those you can actually put more power into because they're better at dissipating the heat than an outrunner. Right. Right. Well, actually, the outrunner is better at dissipating heat. Um, I've unfortunately burned up and demagged and destroyed a lot more motors in my time than anyone should have. <laughs> um, a lot of it was intentional. I wanted to find the limit of something. And um, the outrunners can handle a lot, a lot higher power input. Uh, so a, an outrunner is much more durable. It's much more... Um, capable of taking abuse. You can overprop an outrunner and uh, because the, the can spins, it's going to cool better on the magnet, so you're not going to demagnet as easily. Oh, right. right. Demagnet as easy. How, however, you do run the risk of um, shorting or burning a winding or melting the insulation off a winding uh, yeah. because they're inside now. <laughs> well, anyway, um, so an, an outrunner, you can shove a lot more power through, but it's less efficient. Uh, but it's also on almost an order of magnitude less expensive to produce than an in runner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it's you know it's a trade off. You get away all the variables, and the outrunners make sense to market uh, because you can give a customer something um, that works for a fraction of the price of an in runner. Yeah, I uh, believe they can auto wind, machine wind outrunners, but they, it's very difficult to machine wind an in runner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, a hand round outrunner is also less less um, efficient than a hand round in runner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really matter if it's hand wound or machine wound as much as you think. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. It it matters, but you're you're kind of um uh, you're nitpicking there. You know, you're looking at a half percent or one percent difference. <laughs> really, that's it, huh? Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's not that much because um, they want to hand wind them as fast as the machines are. So the people that are hand winding them are hand winding them very, very fast. So they're not that much better than the machine. <laughs> Sometimes the machine's actually better. Anyways, well, Gary, thanks for that input. I mean, that's a yeah. really good insight. Um, I guess uh, one 
final follow-up question. Uh, yeah. I, I know you probably can't talk specifics, but what kind of right. things can we expect from the mind of Gary Wright and Hobbyco in the future? Well, I I can't comment on Hobbyco, and my role there is not with airplanes. Well, <laughs> um, anything. We're, this is RC roundtable. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I can't really comment comment officially from Hobbyco. Well, we understand. There, there are always a lot of things in development, but. Personally, I've got a lot of things um, that I'm doing now, and if certain people there express an interest, you could possibly see them. Um, the The slow ride seems um, very popular everywhere I go and fly it. Um, so that that would be a possibility. Uh, I'm going to refine that design some more. Uh, that's a 63-inch by 15-inch wing. Is 65 inches long so it's about the size of a you can do 60 if you're familiar with that mm, yeah but the you can do 60 flies around eight or nine pounds and this flies at two and three quarters <laughs> yeah so with something like that that you've built for yourself obviously yeah. very customized if it were to be designed for manufacturing how significant would the changes have to be um well, I'd have to change the design some, but I'd have to find another motor because I'm running that little two and a half ounce or 71 gram motor to within an inch or a millimeter of its life on that airplane. <laughs> there, there's no way that you'd be able to market that. So I'd have to redesign the airplane and find another motor that would work with it. <laughs> um, gotcha. But the airframe could be relatively unscathed. Oh, yeah. What a what I've learned after flying this one for a number of months now, and a lot of people have flown it, is um, even at the weight it's at, I severely over-designed the wing. <laughs> uh, I could save a lot in it. So I could save enough weight that mass manufacturing methods, which add weight, um, would not would not hurt it in any way. So you're not... Uh, especially weighing balsa and things like that to get it that light. Oh, <laughs> when I designed this plane, I knew I knew what my goals were, and weight was going to be critical. So I took every sheet of balsa that I owned, and I've got more balsa in my workshop than probably ten hobby shops put together. I spent a few hours with the gram scale, and I weighed every sheet. And um, before I laser cut the parts, because I used a laser cutter to cut everything, um, it was hand-selected wood. Like, for instance, uh, 16th by 4 by 36 sheets, um, they'll weigh anywhere from um, 18 grams up to 60 grams. If you just pull wood off of the rack at any hobby shop, there is that big a difference. It can be three times the lightest. Uh, there's no sheet over 20 grams that went into this plane. When I built the control surfaces out of sticks, I weighed all of the um, quarter-inch square and eight-by-quarter sticks. A quarter-inch square stick will go from four to seven grams. They're all four-gram sticks. Wow. So I would imagine even if a production model picks up half a pound, a, a three-pound, 63-inch airplane is still going to be a marvel for most pilots. Oh, exactly. I mean, th this thing's got... If I remember correctly, it's around a seven ounce per square foot wing loading. And like you know, lighter. it could pick up a half a pound and it would still only be like an eight and a half ounce per square foot, which is equivalent to a gentle lady glider. 
Yeah, I was thinking you could thermal the thing. Yeah. Oh. So that, that's one thing that I'm really interested in refining now just for myself. And if they decide to pick it up, that's fine. Um, Interesting. I've got a biplane version of that that I'm working on the design for that I want to do for myself. I want to do a larger crazy wing. I actually have a revised E3D, an E3D Mark II. It's the original, but it's it's actually a little larger now to take advantage of the power systems we have. Oh. And it's got plug-in wing panels. Oh, you have um, my interest. Yeah, it's 57-inch span, about 800 squares, I believe. Rimfire 32 on 4S. Um, wow. i got another idea for you. Yeah. A biplane crazy wing. Uh... I don't know. <laughs> He's being polite, Fitz. I like I weird stuff, but weird. Well, Lee, you've been quiet. Uh, you have any thoughts or anything? I I like listening to his story. The one comment I was going to make is I found an awesome video on YouTube of your RC digs, Gary, and that's oh. really impressive, my friend. What a great place <laughs> to design all your your uh, future models. I. I think the E3D Mark II was on the table when they filmed that. Yeah, it's, it's neat. Probably, yeah, actually, I've got videos of a lot of stuff on the um, on the RC Group's blog. <laughs> okay, we'll put a link to your blog on the website. Okay. No, and we'll also put that video online. It's uh, that's impressive. I think we we've talked about having a, a hobby shop uh, episode, you know, discussing how yours is and. Uh, I think early on we talked about mine because I, I moved into a new house three years ago and I custom built uh, the back of my garage for my my hobby room. But you uh, you uh, you're a little bit better, I think. <laughs> no. Well, I'm I'm 49 and started this when I was 12, so it's many years of knowing what you need and what you don't need in the shop. <laughs> well, space is <laughs> definitely one of those needs, and it looks like that basement is uh, fully loaded. Yeah, it's only about 1,100 square feet, but that's all my workshop. Hey, Terry, did you hear that? Only 1,100? Yeah, I, I caught that. Yeah. Good well, thing he can't see me on video now. Yeah. Crying in your beer? There's some sign language going on. A little bit. <laughs> I understand. Well, we would, I guess we've taken up enough of Gary's time. I really appreciate okay. him joining us for today in the session it's been extremely informative and uh i, I think uh, we really appreciate you for coming in and uh, hopefully no uh, sometime in the future we can have you back yeah thanks gary we appreciate you giving us your saturday morning okay and we're looking forward to your new designs okay well just look on rc groups because they're not hobby co designs they're my designs <laughs> so you don't know if they'll be in production production or not <laughs> Well, that's what makes it awesome. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. In our previous episode, number 17, we asked listeners to like our Facebook post, and we would choose a lucky listener to win a thunder and lightning kit and i've run the random number generator and i have selected our winner and his name is michael wilson he lives in stone mountain georgia 
and I will be sending him a message right now to let him know that he's won the kit. I'll get his address and we'll hopefully get it out to him for the Christmas holidays. So thank you, Michael, for listening. Thank you, the other 189 listeners who liked our page. We certainly appreciate it. We hope that you subscribe to our Facebook page. And also, if you use uh, iTunes, uh, you also subscribe to our podcast. And we also encourage you guys to send us ideas or comments and suggestions so we can uh, read them or, or share them on our podcast. So again, thank you guys. We've made uh, 2016 a wonderful year for us, and we hope to do some more giveaways in 2017. Any any last uh, Christmas gifts you want from Santa? You're going to put your little list right here? Say, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is a fill in the blank. But I am Santa. <laughs> I am Santa. I am Santa. (laughs) (laughs) All I want is these dumb kids to stop asking me for things. (laughs) Seriously, if if there was one kit that Santa would leave into your tree, what would it be? And for fun, we'll say money is no object, so you can really go out there. But assuming it's an RC model kit, what would it be? I think I'm going to go with, um, what was that airplane we were talking about a couple weeks ago? The new Phoenix one? Oh, gosh. Humperdinck? Oh, I'm having a too. <laughs> Westland, isn't it? Westland something? Uh, the Lysander. Lysander, yes. All I want for Christmas is a Phoenix Lysander. And your two front teeth. Uh, yeah, that too. And Fitz, what would yours be? I have no idea. Really? Anything that we've talked about in the shows that you haven't just been given to, to review? <laughs> well, there's a few things, but I don't want to blow it on that. You said if money's no object, I want to go big. Well, it's not your money, though. Oh. Um, okay, we'll set a limit. $1,500. Well, How's something that? I, well, there's something I really want, but it's not out yet. Oh, God. So Why be... does Fitz have to ruin it? It was a simple <laughs> question. A tactic watch. Is that what you want for Christmas? Um, uh, yeah, the size of a tablet. <laughs> <laughs> I want a big t- tablet watch. It takes two bands to hold it onto my arm. And... It's actually a glove. Well, I'll just skip Fitz because he's still working on his thought. I, I, no I definitely want that Motion RC uh, Tiger Cat. That would be one that I'd like under my tree. That's neat. Mm. I don't oh, yeah. think it would fit under the tree, but <laughs> excellent choice. Yeah, no argument with that. That is that's a sweet plane. And next to the tree, yes. it's uh, That's definitely one I've enjoyed uh, talking about. Are you stumped, Fitz? We almost need that, like that Jeopardy music. Uh, I don't the song I isn't that long. I know, and I don't think it, we put him on the spot, really. I mean, he's in the hobby. Well, we, should we just randomly pick him one? He doesn't deny himself. When he wants something, he gets it. So the list is always short. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I'd have to find something that was so outrageous, you know, the 20-foot the B-36 or something. Oh. It's so outrageously expensive and huge and impractical that I would never buy it. He just doesn't have the spirit of Christmas, does he? No. We didn't say you were going to get it. We're not We're not teaming up to buy it for you. Just give us a wild hair. Is that it? Uh, turbine. Okay, there we go. Woo-hoo. Some sort of turbine model. There you go. <laughs> well, let's hope Santa brings it to you. Santa, are you listening? I want to <sighs> Okay, on that note, I think uh, we're done here. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, well, I think we had a, another fascinating, enjoyable, uh, slightly less agonizing episode of the RC Roundtable this year. Uh, I just want to thank both you guys uh, for for participating in this grand experiment in podcasting. We've had a pretty interesting year. We started this thing not knowing what we, not knowing anything about what we're doing, and I still don't think we know much about what we're doing. But we've well, but I think we have fun doing that. We graduated to you know grade three now, so we're working our way through. We know slightly more than we when we started. <laughs> well, I wanted to say that I was very excited to put together the podcast with my two close friends, Terry and Fitz, and we've had one heck of a time getting together every every other week, but sometimes every week, just chatting away and and sharing our stories with you guys. And I'm really looking forward to 2017. I think we've uh, kind of smoothed out some of the bumps and uh i really hope that we can get together uh, in dallas to uh, sit up there get together in dallas to meet up with keith and and see each other again but uh hope we have a guys have a merry christmas and a happy new year and let's uh let's hope that rc roundtable gets gets really rolling in 2017. i couldn't agree more and if we meet up in dallas i'll bring the watch the watch. <laughs> One final program note. This is our last broadcast for the year. We decided to take a little time off for the rest of the month, and we'll be back in January, I believe, on the 13th for the next episode, and or shortly after that. And we'll be bright and fresh and ready to discuss all aspects of RC models. Until next time, thank you guys, thank you listeners, and have a wonderful holiday. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, guys. Bye-bye. Please visit our website at rcroundtable.com where you can send us comments and suggestions and listen to our other great podcasts. Those who live in Las Vegas can listen to us over the radio at the all-new Magic 97.9 FM, KIOF LP Las Vegas.